Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. <clears throat> I wanted to start off the talk tonight <clears throat> with a um, Calvin and Hobbes cartoon. <clears throat> that great Dharma resource. <clears throat> First frame. Calvin is saying, here I am, happy and content. Second frame, but not euphoric. Third frame, so now I'm no longer content. I'm unhappy, my day is ruined. Last frame, I need to stop thinking while I'm ahead. I want to talk tonight on uh, something that I hope will be relevant to both the, um, the departing yogis and the continuing yogis, uh, and that is the uh, quality of contentment. The Buddha said in the Dhammapada, contentment is the greatest wealth. Just let that sink in. Contentment is the greatest wealth. It's such a, it seems like a a relatively bland word, but it's such a profound word when you go deeply into it. Contentment, you know, as he also said, there's no higher happiness than peace. That not wanting anything more out of the moment, not needing more, not needing for anything to be taken away. Contentment touches on a number of different noble qualities that we've been exploring. Sally gave a talk on, uh, on renunciation, on the power of letting go, the, really the third noble truth. This is really the essence of that capacity to let go when there's a sense of wholeness and uh, not, not feeling a poverty mentality, when then we can really let go. It's also um, touched on a direct connection to equanimity that is just letting things be as they are. That's the natural response when there's true contentment. Nothing needs to be fixed. It's just things as they are. And there's a a paradox, uh, particularly here in practice, Um, And also in our life, if you really have uh, been touched by the Dharma and a continual um, 
aspiration to fully awaken, become conscious. And that is, um, it does require dedication. It requires diligence. We really need to put in our time in order to learn how to let things just be. So contentment doesn't mean laziness. It doesn't mean complacency. In fact, uh, again from the Buddha, one of his discourses, one of his teachings, two things I came to know well. This is talking about in his uh, quest for freedom. Two things I came to know well. Not to be content with good states so far achieved and to be unremitting with concern with with concern about one's liberation so not to be content with good states and to be unremitting with concern about one's liberation so how does how does that get reconciled how do you how do you have both oh contentment the greatest wealth and yet to not be content with various experiences in wholesome states until you have completely awakened how can we have both a deep sincerity of wholeheartedness throwing ourselves into the practice without grasping or wanting. That's the, um, that's the koan, so to speak. And partly uh, the way I reconcile these, and uh, hopefully you can relate, is when you've been touched by the Dharma, when the Dharma hook has gotten in there, it's like there's no turning back. There's one, one quality, um, in one list, uh, talking about the 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 bases of uh, that fuel our uh, our practice, bases of success. It's is one term for this list of the idipadas, the the fuels of practice, and one of them is called citta idipada, where you've been touched deeply by the Dharma. And it's like not everything just pales in comparison. And this is the center of your life, like a moth to a flame. And it's not so much that you're grasping for particular experiences, but there's something deep within you that uh, can't ignore this call. This call to somehow come to a freedom and an ease that is not looking for anything else that arrives at complete wholeness. This is um, one of my teachers. I, I think I've mentioned him before. Uh, Punjaji, did I mention him here? Yeah, no? Um, this uh, Advaita, uh, amazing teacher, H.W.L. Punja. Punjaji, also known as Papaji. Um, and I spent some time with him um, in the early 90s and uh, really 
touched my practice uh, deeply. He he talks about this this pull. <clears throat> he says, "The desire for freedom is a mysterious desire. It's always there. It is the most intense desire. All other desires are on the surface. They rise and fall." The desire for freedom, though, is intense. And when you hear it, you must respond to it. And when you respond, it will bring you home. It will continue to trouble you if it is not fulfilled. Have you heard it? Have you heard it? It's one thing to read about it in a book, but when you've been touched that way, then um, there's no choice. It's not to say that everybody has this 24-7, but I think most everyone here has felt that calling, and even more than the doubts or the frustrations or the confusions or the all the things that get in the way or all the neuroses that you're seeing in your mind and <sighs> trying to make room for them, there's something deep inside that, that keeps you going. And the more you can hear this call, the more you, you let it really work its way into your heart or shine through, then um, the more you are doing practice not for some kind of gaining or credential or badge or achievement, but because you don't have a choice. Something is pulling you towards greater and greater awakening. So how to again, reconcile that pull with this experience of contentment. As you more and more walk this path, you have more and more faith and trust that if you just keep on showing up in earnest, that life will continue to reveal itself to you and support you not because you're a good boy or a good girl or you're doing all the right things or you're following the recipe, but because your heart is really, uh, as, the, as the phrase um, faith, the word faith uh, is, trans- is uh, from the word sadha, S-A-D-D-H-A. Sometimes it's translated as faith or trust or confidence. It really means to put one's heart upon, that you give a heartfelt, a wholeheartedness in that throwing yourself into the truth and into the moment. And there's a sense that it will keep on uh, leading you onward. And at the same time, knowing that this moment is all you need It's all you need to wake up. When we take refuge in the Dharma, we do this, we've been doing this throughout the retreat. 
when you take refuge in the Dharma, you are really saying, in my mind, that the Dharma life is giving you what you need in every moment to wake up. When you think about that, how, how profound that is. I take refuge in the Dharma. There is, it's an act of, of deep trust and surrender that's saying, this moment is all that I need to wake up to. I don't have to worry about the ones ahead or the ones that have happened or where I've been the last three days or what's around the corner. Uh, just this moment. It makes it so much more um, doable and is the very, uh, the very invitation to let go of anything else. I take refuge in the Dharma in this moment and to open up to this moment as being completely enough is saying really that Nothing needs to be added. Nothing needs to be taken away. As, as one yogi put it, uh, nothing more is needed than what's happening right now. He came into an interview and it was just so moving and beautiful. Just speaking from authentic experience, I'm finally seeing, I'm finally getting, nothing more is needed than what's happening right now. Wow, what a relief. This is what the, the profound contentment is about. And in that more and more trusting and surrendering, you're being held by life. Um, I don't think I use the image here of, uh, did I talk about learning to swim? No, I just gave a talk, in, I think, in, in Berkeley. I, and I, you know, I mentioned it to a couple of people in, uh, in interviews. This is my, um, my analogy for learning to trust. Um, you know when you first learn how to swim? Remember when you learned how to swim and somebody put you in a pool, hopefully in a pool, not, not the ocean, but uh, um, put you in a pool... Okay, even the ocean, actually, that, that works just as well, but it's a little bit choppier. But there you are, and you're kind of, but scary the first time you go in without being held. You know, okay, you can be held, held. and now we're going to just, I'm going to let go of holding you. And you're kind of, you know, flailing about, and somebody is saying, you know, just relax. It's okay. And you're kind of going up and down, you know, what do you mean relax? I'm going up and down here, right? And then you finally kind of get that, oh, I, oh, this is what that treading water stuff is about. And then you're treading and you're seeing that less flailing about and you're just kind of being held up. Oh, that's really cool. And then there's that magic moment where you just completely stop. Stop all effort. And there you are, floating. Not having realized that the water was there to hold you up all along. It was always there. You just were flailing about so it couldn't do what it's able to do. 
and there you completely let go and you're floating. That's kind of what we're doing here, going from flailing to floating. (laughs) And realizing that, that the moment can hold you, that you can be supported in it, you don't have to fight it, that there's a sense of ease and wholeness and um, trustability when you can genuinely surrender your battle. So it takes effort to get here. It definitely takes effort to get here. But once you're here, any effort is extra. This is... uh, from Gendon Rinpoche. Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already here in relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do. Let the game happen on its own, springing up and falling back without changing anything. All will vanish and reappear without end. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you relax this grasping, space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Nothing to do, nothing to force, and everything happens by itself. Now that's a, a, a very high uh, Dzogchen teaching, Tibetan teaching, but I should also put, uh, interject that this happens, you get the high teachings after you've done the preliminary practices, which include 108,000 prostrations, 108,000 mantra recitations and visualizations. You gotta work hard before they say, just let go and relax, right? <laughs> but. It's all part of the same, the same dance. Just like here, you really work to arrive here and you have what uh, Trungpa Rinpoche used to call manual labor. You know, just kind of meditation practice is like manual labor. You're just kind of bringing yourself back each time. And then finally, when you arrive here, when you're actually here in the moment, any, ex- any effort is extra. There's, there's nothing more that you need to do to make it a better moment. That's when you can simply just be. And we need to learn this again and again and again. Because the force of wanting, the force of craving, is so strong, it's so seductive, you know. Oh wow, that moment was really good. How do I make it happen again? You know? It's there in the subtlest in the meditation and it's there also in our lives, the force of wanting, the force of this feels so good and not trusting that we can stop our manipulation and life will still be okay. It's so interesting how the game is wired up that 
you're not just satisfied with a desire fulfilled, but that when it gets fulfilled, it feels so good that it just makes you want more. It didn't have to be that way. I mean, it could have been, could have been constructed that you get what you want, you say, ah, that's good. I don't need any more now. But that's not how we're wired up. It's like part of the, part of the plan. You have to see through that again and again and again. But once you see through it, wow. You, know, you can see this. I mean, when I, I was thinking about different ways that I see it, you know, there's email calling you. you know. Oh, I'll just check again. You know. Or hyperlink reality. You know, one link to another. Oh, and what is this one going to tell me? Oh, what about this one? Those who are, who are leaving soon, um, you are forewarned. Um, it's so seductive. The Buddha saying, what is it, he was asked, what is it that chains? And his answer, attachment to preferences. That's what chains. In our, uh, the two um, chants that we've been doing, the, the mangala, the, the blessings, and the, uh, the metta chants, they both talk about this quality of contentment in the mangala sutta, to be content and grateful. The metta, to be contented and easily satisfied. And now, even more than in the time of the Buddha, it's, there's a, a conspiring against us coming to some sense of wholeness and completion. This is uh, from the economist Victor Lebeau, who, I didn't read this, no. Because I'm, I'm giving, I gave a couple of talks while I'm here at other places and I thought I just, oh, I know where I read it. Sorry, excuse me, my mind is just kind of going off here. All right. Um, some, you know, I know that feeling like when somebody's about to read something that they just read three nights ago, you say, oh my God. Anyway, here is Victor Lebeau, the economist, mm, uh, talking right after World War II about how our economy is run. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. And so you are not a human being, you are a consumer. You are a consumer unit, one could say. That's what we're kind of up against. And to be content is really subversive. And I want to read to you, actually, uh, something that um, that was uh, uh, a dramatic juncture 
in Buddha Dharma in the last century, whether or not you you know it. Um, this was um, in Thailand. Uh, let's see, I think I'll... Yeah, I'll just read this from... Uh, this is, again, from Hooked, the, the uh, Stephanie Kaza book that uh, Sally uh, has shared. The qualities of moderation... Oops and contentment um, challenge our society. In the late 1950s and 60s, as Thailand launched itself into the international marketplace, the Thai government of the time made the extraordinary move of specifically requesting that the leading abbots and teachers of the Thai Buddhist community not encourage contentment in their teachings. This was actually um, because the the Americans and our free enterprise system wanted to to have the Thai, Thailand join our uh, perspective. And uh, the Thai government in order to emulate us and uh, uh, it took advice on our experts, advisors, and uh, said, okay, if you do away with contentment, then, then your country is really going to thrive. Right? In their drive to encourage productivity and consumerism, the political powers regarded moderation and contentment as obstacles to their program. Sad to say, most of the monastic community acquiesced to this request, being culturally conditioned to not cause conflict and to maintain the status quo. However, one prominent teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, had no fear of those in power. Although he had official ranks and titles, he was not at all worried about losing them if he spoke up. He was very strong uh, and uh, outspoken and courageous and, and brilliant master. That guy spent uh, what, about a year in, uh, in robes uh, at, with Ajahn Buddhadasa. He came right out and openly challenged the politicians, asking them if they felt they were wiser than the Buddha. Surely the Buddha, he said, would never have extolled qualities so highly and universally regarded if they were something that could possibly be harmful. And his courage to say the truth turned the tide and they kept contentment in the teachings. Isn't that amazing? So contentment really is subversive. But how to really, how to see through that, that pain of wanting, because as we said, it's so seductive. You, you know, you could just be blinded each time. And the one key, which we are getting more and more, whether you're here for one month or two, is to see how painful it is to hold on how painful it is to want more than what there is. Little exercise. Close your eyes for a moment. Just try this. And just relax. 
feel your breath or whatever your anchor is or just, uh, just feel this moment of life as it's presenting itself. And just feel the ease of us all being together, sharing the Dharma. And now think of something you really want. Maybe it's if you're leaving what you'll do when you go home or who you'll see, or if you're staying here, what, you know, maybe wanting everybody to leave and uh, finally getting on with the next retreat or think of something you really want. Now let yourself really want it. And notice how it feels. And now come back to the breath or your anchor. Once again, get grounded in this moment. And now notice something in your experience right now that there is to appreciate. Again, maybe being here with Sangha or loving the Dharma or just being with the breath. So that this moment is just enough. Okay, if you like, you can open your eyes. You see the difference? And yet it's so, so seductive. But if you look carefully, if you really track the difference between an ease and a wholeness in this moment to all of a sudden something else right around the corner, ah, you can feel the difference. You have to keep on looking again and again and seeing for yourself a thousand times, a million times, oh yes, wanting is suffering. That's what the second noble truth is. I mean, you'd think you'd get it by now, right? (laughs) Cut yourself a lot of slack. (laughs) Most people, even people who've been practicing for decades, still need to learn this all the time. This is where the real peace is. So now, that doesn't mean that you don't have plans or visions or aspirations or goals. You know, the, the thought can come, okay, am I just supposed to be a zombie and just, uh, or a vegetable and whatever happens, happens. No, because wise intention is also a very, well, it's one of the eightfold path qualities. So it's, it's very, very important, as the Buddha was saying, that not to be content with various states, but this balance between having an inspiring vision, having plans that face us in the right direction, but not to be attached to the timetable or the results and to see that life is about living here right now 
and they both have their part. And this is kind of um, the difference, as was mentioned before, between uh, tanha, between the desire that is associated with craving, with incompleteness, and chanda, the desire that has a kind of beneficial quality to it, that is leading towards uh, a wholesomeness, towards an ease, towards an opening, not towards more contraction. And it's kind of tricky because you can have an initial beneficial aspiration, but then get into a grasping around that too. You know, oh, I deeply want to be free for the benefit of all beings. That can be a beautiful aspiration, but it can turn into, gosh, this is taking a long time. I really want to be free for the benefit of all beings. Let's get on with it. Okay. So you got to keep on monitoring where you're coming from, where your heart is coming from, as you get in touch with your wholesome and inspirational visions. What in, uh, in the teachings is uh, sometimes called your clear comprehension of purpose. Where something has touched you deeply and whatever it is, whether it's becoming free, becoming a more loving person, sharing your gifts, being, uh, being of support for others, waking up fully, whatever it is associated with a wholesome intention, then that can ride your, uh, your uh, energy and, and dedication for practice. And that gives us inspiration and allows us to trust. So, in contrast to this consumption, this wanting more and more, there is what's called um, matanuta, or moderation, that is just the right amount. This is not saying you should never have any desire, any want, you know, it's not okay to want, you know, an ice cream or... Uh, a, a good meditation or whatever. It's just seeing the right amount of this aspiration and the right amount of satisfaction. And this is, uh, is it? from the um, Buddhist scholar P.A. Paiuto. He says... Um, It is an awareness of that optimum point where enhancement of true well-being coincides with the experience of satisfaction. Consumption balanced to an amount appropriate with well-being rather than to the satisfaction of all desires. In contrast to maximum consumption, leading to more satisfaction, we have moderate or wise consumption leading to well-being. You know that sweet spot where you 
have an experience, a pleasant experience, something, uh, a fulfilling experience, and you say, ah, just enough. It takes some real mindfulness to notice, ah, this is enough. And any more will be too much. You know, whether it's like in food, you know, the th- one dessert was so good, well, three must be that much better. After a while, you get indigestion. And it's the same principle in our life, wanting more, wanting more than after you hit that point, you get too much. So this quality of moderation, matanuta, it's really a, a, a beautiful thing to, uh, to explore. This is from the Buddha, the Buddha saying, he said uh, some different qualities and virtues. Patient endurance is the supreme practice. Being self-possessed of virtue knowing the right amount in taking food. And the interesting thing is, he was giving this discourse to um, a room full or a group of arhats. They were all enlightened beings. And he was telling them, pay attention, noting the right amount of food is, is good. Even an arhat might take too much. So just to kind of see, to start exploring when enough is enough. You know, if you're sitting and you're just really having a a delicious meditation and then it starts starts to change, notice the grasping mind that says, how do I get it back? And then just let it be and letting go. You know, the people who were uh, uh, doing the integration in the last day or, uh, and today, you know, I can remember when we started. I first did retreats and was starting on integration, and um, I just hated opening up my mouth. Like, oh no, I want to squeeze a bit more mindfulness out of it. Come on, do I have to do this now? And then, after a while, just kind of learning that, oh, time to let go. Okay. And I stop giving myself a headache and, and, and frustration, but just say, okay, time for a change. I've had enough of the stillness, now time to open up. On one, uh, one retreat, one early retreat, when uh, uh, sitting at, uh, at IMS for, for the fall, and um, for Thanksgiving, they you know, have a Thanksgiving special feast. Um, And in the early days, I don't know if they do it now, but in the early days, they just went all out. And on this one retreat, not only did they have like food just overflowing, cornucopia, but you could see on the back the dessert table they had five different pies. I don't know whose mind was doing that, but I ate, it was, I put on my, 
<laughs> I put, on, put all the good food on my plate. It was the most unpleasant meal I had that whole retreat because all that I could think of was eating all of this great food so I could get to my, which pie slice would I choose? You know, and I would take a little sliver of each, of course. But I wasn't there at all. I, I was not there at all because I was too busy thinking about the next, the next thing. You know, just sometimes I call it the, the hidden promise of what the next moment is going to bring that seduces us. Mmm, that's going to be it. And it can be around stuff. It can be around pleasant experience. It can be about doing more things in your life. Those who are leaving uh, tomorrow, you know, I really want to encourage you. Simplicity is the way. And everything will conspire against it. This is good, and that's good. This will be really cool to do, and that'll be, that'll be really cool to do. I want to read to you um, from my, uh, my favorite writer, uh, a great column that he wrote. This is a, a guy named Mark Morford who writes every Wednesday. You can see him online. <clears throat> it's my, my big thing, reading Morford on Wednesday. This is from the column uh, called... Hurry up, get more done, and die. Your terrifying word of the day is microtasking, and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exist to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things that you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise. But hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? It's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you could get checked off your list. We are, by and large, utterly terrified of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation, for most, is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. 
get this, in any 48-hour period in 2010, says a stunning bit I read in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years up to the year 2005. By the year 2020, that same amount of of data will be created in a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. Imagine that. In a 48-hour period, more than had been created up until 2005 in all of human history. And it's just insane. You say, oh, that's important information. Oh, and that's important. Oh, and that'll be good. There's no way you can keep up with it all. I'll just read a little bit more. It's no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, waving to the closed caption cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You can't just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car. (laughs) How easily we forget. Time expands, time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day, and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time merely will laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. Another way of looking at things. This is from Peace Pilgrim, the wonderful 20th century American renunciate sage. She says, if your life is in harmony with your part in the life pattern, and if you are obedient to the laws which govern this universe, then your life is full and good, but not overcrowded. If it is overcrowded, you are doing more than is right for you to do, more than is your job to do in the total scheme of things. What a different way to live. So seeing the dukkha is the wake-up call. Every time there's wanting, you know, to really, no judgment. If there's judgment, there's just more dukkha. But just to kind of see how it works. Oh, this is what goes on. And you're exploring for all of us. You know, uh, who was it? Kate mentioned last night about VRs, Vipassana romance. I won't, I don't wish it on anybody, but when it comes, it's really a, a path.
powerful teaching in seeing how the second noble truth works. On one retreat, this is uh, many years ago, um, one of my early retreats, I was down at Yucca Valley and um, had big, as I said uh, a few few nights ago, big retreats, you know, 150 people or so. And clearly there was one person that caught my eye. All right, wow. And then there was a second person who was attractive, but wasn't quite as, you know, much as the first one. And then there was a third and a fourth, right? And I had, oh, I would be doing walking meditation. This is before I was married, by the way. Uh, (laughs) Just in case you're listening, Jane, yeah. and I'd be doing walking meditation, and I'd be I'd notice, oh, there's number three going by. <laughs> and what happened on this retreat, the real lesson, after about a week, number one left the retreat. All of a sudden, Zafa was gone, Zabutan, Shawl, the whole thing, and I, I said, oh my God, he's gone. You don't have a chance to say goodbye on retreat. You know, all of a sudden everything disappears. But what happened was, after about an hour, I stopped thinking about her. Everybody else moved up a notch. (laughs) And it was so clear that it wasn't about that person. It was just desire looking for something to land on. A great lesson. So this is, this is kind of seeing how it works. We're just looking for something to land on. And when we can just come back to ourselves, ah, this is peace. Here's another little uh, experiment. Think of something, again, that you're looking forward to. Okay, one more time. You probably got it in your mind. All right, now... Just imagine it's out in front of you. You can open your eyes when you do this. Imagine it's out in front of you. And if you can reach far enough, you'll get instant gratification. So just play along with me on this. Keep your butt on the, on the cushion or the chair. And I'd like you to just lean forward. Come on, really go for it. And it's just out of reach. And then you realize it's not going to ha- happen. So now slowly let your body Come back net to now, to this moment, and notice the difference. Can you feel the difference? This is really unpleasant. As tantalizing and seductive as it is, this is where peace is. The third Zen patriarch says, the way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. excess. And contentment is really allowing for everything to be included. Whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, it's this moment, nothing left out, nothing is to be rejected. This moment is complete enough No need to figure out how to make it better. No need to manipulate or try to bargain. 
No need to take anything away. If it's a difficult one, what a great lesson in how to open up to challenges with wisdom and kindness. If it's a beautiful one, what a, what a great opportunity to really take in the good and have appreciation and gratitude. That this moment is complete, this moment is enough, and in the same way that you're complete and you're enough. That's why this metaphor self is so crucial. Because in that sense of sufficiency, of enoughness, there is contentment. And when there's true contentment, there's a, a feeling of abundance. You have everything you need, or as uh, my son Adam says, he's, he's a, 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 a dedicated practitioner. He, he talks about the experience of abundant enoughness. That sense of, of enoughness and being just so full and with that fullness is, it just overflows in the heart and there's gratitude and out of that gratitude, which I know just about everybody here has, has experienced and expressed, out of that gratitude comes a generosity and comes the natural love that, that wants to come out of you. As I, I read the other night that Shanti Deva quote about the miracle awakening, the one line I love, the miracle of awakening lifts us above poverty into the wealth of giving to life. Just like the Buddha said, the greatest wealth. And then in that sense of enoughness and completeness, there's a real trust. Not that everything is going to work out just the way you want, but that you can trust, that you can meet the moment, that your awareness can meet the moment, that there's a a real ease that we can move through life with. Just all from letting go of wanting it to be different when you can't change it and to open up to a real experience of freedom and ease of contentment. So I'll close with um, a poem by Dana Falls. I read this the other night, late night. <clears throat> Those who weren't here for late night can get it now. This is called Let It Go. Let go of the ways you thought life would unfold. The holding of plans or dreams or expectations Let it all go. Save your strength to swim with the tide. The choice to fight what is here before you now will only result in struggle, fear, and desperate attempts to flee from the very energy you long for. Let it go. Let it all go and flow with the grace that washes through your days, whether you receive it gently or with all your quills raised to defend against invaders. Take this on faith, 
The mind may never find the explanation that it seeks, but you will move forward nonetheless. Let go and the wave's crest will carry you to unknown shores beyond your wildest dreams or destinations. Let it all go and find the place of rest and peace and certain transformation. So I'll just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.